Matthew. Let's turn to Matthew 28. We're ready to finish our series through Matthew this morning, looking at the last paragraph here of Matthew's Gospel, and specifically verses 16 through 20, which we're kind of entitling our resurrection responsibility now that Jesus gives to us as his people that we are to be carrying on in this age, namely making disciples. Uh, That's the key responsibility he's given to us. And um, last week we looked at the first 15 verses primarily of this chapter examining some aspects of the resurrection and more particularly these resurrection appearances of Jesus to his people. And then now in this last paragraph we have him standing before his disciples and commissioning them into the nations to bring the good news about him to the nations. And um, that's why we call it the Great Commission. As a matter of fact, in the Bibles that we provide here, that's what it's entitled there in bold above this paragraph, the Great Commission. What I want to do as we bring to a conclusion this, this gospel this morning, I really have three goals in mind for it. Uh, we'll explain the, the Great Commission some, or as we're calling it, like I said, the resurrection responsibilities. And within that, as I'm doing that, I want to weave in some review of uh, Matthew's gospel. And then I'm going to set us up on the, on the last point for our transition into the book of Romans, which we will probably begin next week, uh, but definitely within the next couple of weeks we'll begin that. And so I want to set us up for that, connecting it to Matthew, because I realize what a great primer Matthew is uh, to the book of Romans. And you're saying, how are you going to fit that all into one message of reasonable length? To which I say, I'm a professional. (laughs) I do this for a living. Do not try this at home. You will hurt yourself. But I can do it and conclude at our normal amount of time. So with that, let's begin by reading verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's just pause now and ask God to bless his word. Father, as we turn to this important time in a worship service now that is your idea and that you have commanded, that is the the preaching and teaching of your word, I ask that you would help me and gift me to be able to explain this uh, passage and uh, other things, Lord, that we'll look at in a way that everybody can understand and profit from. I pray for the gifting of teaching and exhortation and uh, that you would help us all listen to you uh, and to then take these teachings and apply them into our lives and by that we'd be 
being disciples of Jesus. We ask this for your glory and for the good of your people, uh, that you would do this now for us. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, our resurrection responsibilities. We can picture now Jesus standing before these disciples. We know at least the 11 were there. This could be the occasion of, that Paul mentioned. We looked at last week in 1 Corinthians 15 where he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And we don't have any other record of that. This could be that occasion. We don't know for sure. Some have speculated that. But we know at least the 11 were here. And uh, Jesus is uh, commissioning them into the nations. And this is why we, we began last week with what I'll say now and remind us of, that this really isn't a conclusion, is it? The, Matthew 28 isn't a conclusion. It's really just the beginning now. Jesus had promised in Matthew 16, 18 that he would build his church. And what you're seeing now, the end of Matthew 28, is that his plan to build his church would be through his church. So his... His church, his body here, as he is in, at the right hand of the Father, would be going about and building the church. And that is really what has been happening for 2,000 years. Jesus is building his church through his people. And you'll notice how he begins this. It's very important as he appears to them in verse uh, 16, 17. And he says in verse 18, All authority now... In heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That is a powerful statement. We're so used to hearing it and reading this. It may not have the impact upon us that it would have had to the early readers. What they knew is that there was one with all the authority that there was to have. At least the Jews that would read this that heard this, there's only one that has all the authority there is to have. And it's God. It's the Lord. It's Yahweh. But now here is Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, standing before them saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There is no authority that I do not possess. This is really a claim of deity, isn't it? And further, he'll go on to say, baptize them now in the name of Father, Son, Spirit, all co-equal persons in the Godhead, including me. I am God. And the way God now has designed things is that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to the Son, the incarnate Son, nonetheless. The man Christ Jesus at the right hand of the Father. So he begins with this declaration of his absolute, all-encompassing authority. Now understand that. The resurrected Christ Jesus has all the authority there is to have in heaven and on earth. Over the spiritual realm, over the physical realm, there is no realm, no persons, no peoples, uh, no beings over which Jesus is not authoritative. We say this about God generally and Jesus specifically. He is sovereign, right? That's the word we would use for that. He is sovereignly reigning over all things. And this is really supposed to be an encouragement to his people to recognize that sovereignty, especially as they go into the the nations. Remember, Jesus has been prepping them throughout the whole gospel. Matthew is is that the world, the nations are going to hate you 
because you're proclaiming me, because of your attachment to me, they're going to hate you. And we know from church history and right, right from the very beginning of church history in the book of Acts that authorities and rulers did not like the proclamation of, the, of Jesus as King and Lord and as Savior. And so they would try to stop the disciples. This happens right in the beginning of the book of Acts. They would try to stop the disciples from proclaiming Jesus Christ as the risen Lord and Savior. And so, uh, and we know uh, even to this day, there are nations and places where it's illegal, it's against their law to actually talk about Jesus to other people or proclaim Jesus to other people. So why do we, why can we go about breaking the law of the land in all these places, so to speak? Why can missionaries go into these places and distribute Bibles even though that's illegal or start churches even though that's illegal? I mean, doesn't the Bible tell us we're supposed to obey the authorities that are governing over us? Well, the reason we can do that, friends, and the reason missionaries have always done this and disobeyed the laws of the land that forbade them from preaching the gospel is because Jesus is the ultimate authority of the land, you see. And his authority exceeds that of every authority, whether they recognize it or not. And the Christian submits to the authority of Jesus. So we take this gospel to the nations, whether the nations like it or not, and whether their, their leaders like it or not, and we can do that because Jesus said so. And as Peter would tell the same authorities that really crucified Christ, he, when they said, you've got to stop preaching about this Jesus, he said, it's better to obey God than man. And God told us to take the gospel to the nations. Jesus is sovereign and reigning over all. And that's supposed to be an encouragement to us, friends. Understand that though things in your life or things in your world may look out of control, they are not. <laughs> Jesus is in control. Jesus is ruling and reigning from heaven. Paul summarizes it like this. Verses 15 to 20 of Colossians chapter 1, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. That about sums it up. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. He has absolute authority. As one uh, well-known 19th century theologian declared, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. All authority in heaven and on earth is given unto me. And friends, our responsibility as the church is to proclaim Jesus as Lord of all creation. 
It's our responsibility to proclaim the all-authoritative one as Lord to the nations. That, did you know that's part of the gospel message? Jesus is Savior from sins, yes, but He is Lord of all. That's part of the gospel. As a matter of fact, did you know, in the very first Christian sermon ever to be preached, Acts chapter 2 by Peter at, at Pentecost, he summarized his message with these words. He said, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He is the Lord and the Christ. Remember the idea of the Christ being the King. This crucified one is now raised to the newness of life and He is Lord over all. That's part of the gospel message. We don't want to divide up Jesus. We proclaim Him as He is. He is Lord. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Paul did the same thing in Acts chapter 17. He's evangelizing there and he's preaching to these uh, pagans now, not Jewish people, he's the Gentiles and idol worshipers. And he says this, The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is how Paul would preach to the Gentiles. God has, the the times now of ignorance have passed. Now the good news about Jesus is going through the land and the proper response is to know that this one will judge the living and the dead and so you must repent now and trust in him. He is Lord of all creation. We go about proclaiming that. Remember in Matthew 25, right in the beginning, or I'm sorry, it wasn't in the beginning, it was in uh, verse 31. He says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne, Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on the left. And then it goes on to explain how he will allow entrance into his kingdom of the sheep but the goats he sends into eternal punishment. He has the authority over all things and over all peoples. And the message of the gospel says that we are all sinners and we have broken his authoritative law and we deserve his punishment. And yet the good news is that the king himself, the Lord himself, has come and died for our sins and was raised again so that if you will repent and you will trust in Him, you find from Him grace and mercy and forgiveness and eternal life. That's good news, isn't it? We proclaim that to the nations. And then he, back in Matthew 28, he gives to us this resurrection responsibility. And I want to show you something here. He says in verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, in those two verses, verses 19 and 20, there is really essentially only one imperative or one command in the underlying Greek text. We understand that when they wrote the scriptures, they were written in the Greek, okay? There is one imperative here, and then there are three participles. I don't want to go too much into grammar, but I didn't like grammar in school, but as a pastor, I'm liking it more, and I'm understanding the importance of it, all right? There's three participles that are kind of surrounding that main verb uh, command. The main command is what? It's not. Make. Make disciples is the main command. Now, I recognize that as we're reading this, and even in the placement in the Greek text, that, that word go is in a prominent position. It's very important. But it's more of the idea, I think, of something to this effect. As you're going or going, here's the, what you're doing. You're making disciples. You see how that works? Wouldn't do any good to go anyway unless you knew what you were really about. You're to be making disciples. That's the governing commission of the church. Make disciples by going and then baptizing them and then teaching them. But make disciples. We are a disciple-making community then, in essence that began with the apostles and carries on to this day. And we, we believe that this wasn't just a commission to the disciples. We believe that it carries on to this day because Jesus concludes it in verse 20 by saying, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In other words, the idea is this. Uh, as, you're, as you're making disciples, I will be with you until the end of the age, which implies... Keep making disciples until the end of the age. That's why in the Olivet Discourse, he says things like, you know, uh, be good, faithful stewards until I return. That's the idea. You keep going until I return. Okay? You keep making disciples and being faithful in making disciples and keep on doing that until I return. We are to be about the business of making disciples. And friends, if we just think about that, if we think about the concept of making disciples, we understand that that must begin with a proclamation of the good news. You have to share the gospel with people. You have to preach the gospel to people if you want to make a disciple. Okay? If you want to make a follower of Christ, and that's what a disciple is, a follower of Christ, one who learns from Christ and obeys Christ and puts his teachings into application into their life. But if you want to do that, it begins with gospel proclamation. So like back in chapter 24, in verse 14, Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. So this idea that we, we share the good news of, of Jesus with people around us and some go into to other places and other nations and, and they bring the gospel to these, these people. This continues on until Jesus goes or until Jesus comes again. 
But you'll notice something very important about discipleship back in Matthew 28 is that Jesus' instructions do not end with evangelism. That can be a mistake we make. We can be thinking about making disciples strictly in terms of um, sharing the good news with other people. And maybe you share the good news and then, you know, that's what it is. That's what discipleship is. Or getting some people to um, make a profession of faith or whatever it is. I've done my discipleship duty. Really, that's not it. That's just the beginning. Notice what he says. There's really two kind of follow-up things here. One is a point-in-time follow-up, and the, re- the second is an entire life follow-up. So the first one is you baptize them. Did you notice that? You baptize disciples. That's why he says, go therefore make disciples and then baptize them. Who's the them? The them are the disciples. So you make a disciple through evangelizing and sharing the good news of Jesus and everything we talked about last week out of 1 Corinthians 15. And and, and they come to faith in Christ and you're like, I've made a disciple now. Here I have a disciple. And the first thing we've got to do with this disciple is we have to baptize them. Or if you've become a disciple, the first thing you're supposed to do is be baptized. That's the idea. Jesus goes on to say that you're going to teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. And this is why sometimes we'll say that baptism is that really that first very important step of obedience to Jesus. Baptism has never been for the Christian church some kind of option and you weigh it out and see what you want to do with it. It's always just been the command of Jesus. Why do I be baptized? Well... Jesus said so, and I'm his disciple, and I want to obey him, right? We take disciples, and we we baptize them, and notice how important baptism is. He says, you baptize them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. That's really important. That means that baptism itself is this sign of identification with the one true God. And I want you to think of how important that was in those early centuries as the gospel was brought to all of these cultures that had idols and false gods that they were worshiping. You think about places like Ephesus where their primary god, their goddess was Artemis, and they had the temple there and they they worshiped her. You think about all these other just idolatrous nations who had all these false gods And missionaries would go in there with the gospel and share the gospel and they would believe and they would be turning from all those false gods to the one true God. This is what happened in Thessalonica and that's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. There is this turning from false gods to the turning to the one true God and I'm a worshiper now of the one true God Father, Son, and Spirit. I'm identified with Him now. I have turned my back on everything else in order to worship God. You realize, friends, that when you were baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, you now publicly identify with God, which means that you bear His name, or we might put it this way, you represent Him. You're His people now in this world. You represent God in your relationships and in your workplace and at your school and with your friends. If you're claiming to be a Christian, 
you now represent the triune God, and God wants us to take that seriously. He says, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. It means you bear His name. You know what? God takes His name very seriously. Read through your Bible. Read through that Old Testament. One of the biggest beefs God had was Israel is that they misrepresented His name. And they brought disrepute on His name among the nations. This is one of the reasons I think that in the end God makes all these promises to restore uh, Israel in the sight of the nations. Let me show the nations my power to save even my people who have dishonored my name for so long. This is why he tells them when he promises them a new covenant. I'm going to act for the sake of my name because you've brought disrepute upon it. Remember what Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 5? This is so important. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, what did he say? Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He wants us to be bringing glory to God. If you bear his name, you're a a lighthouse for God. You're representing him now here in this world. And we live our lives in such a way that people can see the good works knowing that we worship the one true God and it brings glory to him. You know, in the uh, Ten Commandments, we're told that we're not to take the name of the Lord our God in vain. Oftentimes, we think about that in the context of, you know, don't use the Lord's name in a cussing way or whatever. And certainly that's true. But I think more of the implication in that particular command was this, Israel, you're taking up now the name of the Lord. You're calling yourself now by the name of the Lord. You're identified with Him and do not do that in a vain way because the Lord will not hold Him guiltless who does. We are to take very seriously the fact that we are baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's a sign of identification. And it's a proclamation when you're baptized of discipleship, right? Because He says, make disciples of the nations and baptize them which means when you're baptized, you're saying, I'm a disciple of Jesus now. And throughout all of Matthew's gospel, we got a real vivid picture of discipleship. Jesus went up to men like Matthew, okay, sitting in the tax booth, minding his own greedy business, and Jesus comes up, calls him out, follow me, follow me. Come now, attach yourself to me, learn from me, Put my teachings into practice in your life. Become like me. Jesus will even say, it is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher, his rabbi. This was a very popular concept in that first century time. When we come to faith in Christ we are, uh, and we are baptized, we are proclaiming ourselves to be disciples. A disciple, by definition, is one who is following Jesus by obeying Jesus. He says, now take those disciples and teach them to obey me. So what is a disciple? A disciple is one who is following Christ and one who is living as Christ directs, living according to Christ's commands. That means that discipleship is more than what we say, right? Is a person really being a disciple who just 
prays a prayer of salvation or says, I'm a disciple of Jesus. No, a disciple is really proven by the fact that they follow Christ and obey Him. If they're not obeying Christ, then they can't rightfully claim to be a disciple. And really, friends, I understand that we all are sinners and we all fail, but the general trajectory of our life needs to be we follow Christ, we learn from Jesus, and then we, by His grace and by His Spirit, apply His teaching into our lives. We learn to be faithful, faithful followers of Jesus, right? We want to learn from Jesus and we want to uh, put His practice into our lives you know, it'll be, it'd be interesting to go through Matthew's gospel again if you, you have the chance to read through it and think, do I live and think like Jesus? I think in Matthew's gospel, in, in some ways, is uniquely designed to challenge us at every point in our thinking, making sure that we're not being conformed to this world, but that we're being conformed to the image of Christ, you see. There's a daily danger in that. We need to be being conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And that leads to this question. In Matthew's gospel, so let's just keep it in the context of these 28 chapters, what did Jesus command his disciples? I mean, think about it, because... Because Matthew's assuming you just read his whole gospel, you get to the end to the Great Commission, and in that gospel, Matthew recorded much of Jesus' teachings, didn't he? Big sections of his teachings, like the Sermon on the Mount, and, and commands from Jesus to his disciples. So if we want to keep this in the context, we would say, ask ourselves, okay, what in Matthew's gospel specifically did Jesus teach his disciples to obey? Now, before I go on in that, let me just put in a... Uh, a parenthesis here that says Jesus upheld the entire Bible. Okay, he he upheld that, and he, as a matter of fact, in Matthew five, he said, "Not one part of this is going to diminish until all is passed." And nobody, you shouldn't be teaching anybody to relax any of it. So Jesus would say, "To obey him, you obey the Bible." All right, that's very clear. But keeping it though in the context, what did he in Matthew's gospel command his disciples to be passing on to other disciples? And it was interesting to me to find that there were about 49 actual commands in Matthew's gospel. And I'm not going to go through all those. I'll go point one. All right. I'm going to be at point 30, what, six? Or are we at 35? No. Uh, there's 49 commands. And all you have to do to find those is on your own time, just Google it. <laughs> the commands of Jesus. Because I wasn't the first to like, think about that statement. And so other people have put things up. And you can actually get those commands in a list. But I think that that's, that's good in a sense because we would want to obey those commands he gives. But we also have to understand that Jesus taught other things and demonstrated other things in Matthew's gospel, implied other things that maybe weren't specifically a command that certainly he has here intending for us to obey. So let me just summarize some of those things and then I'm going to hone in on one particular one for our last few minutes. So Jesus commanded his disciples to love, didn't he? He taught them in Matthew's gospel that the first and foremost love we're to have is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Remember, he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Easy peasy, all right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then he said, but the second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
And he clarifies and makes it clear that your neighbor is everyone you come into contact with. We are to be a people who are known for love for their God, passion for their God, and love for other people. He taught them even, friends, that the the radical nature of of Jesus' love and what he teaches us to do extends even to their enemies. Remember what I said, Matthew's Gospel, hasn't it challenged us, things Jesus says? I want you to love even your enemies, which by that he means do good to them. Don't seek vengeance upon them. Leave that to God. If they need something, you provide it. You do good unto your enemies, just like God is. He says, just like God does that, you do that. Okay? We're to love. He taught them to be merciful. As a matter of fact, this was one of the key themes in his problem with the religious leaders of his time. They had no mercy for people. He said, listen, I want you to go learn what this means. Go back to the Old Testament. Go to Hosea. Find this passage and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You're so big on the particulars of your uh, religious rituals, which is good, and they're commanded, but you have no mercy. And this implying somewhat of what... Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, you can have all these things right, you can have all the faith and knowledge there is, but if you don't have love, it's just absolutely useless, right? To be a merciful people. He taught them to preach and call people to repentance. We've seen that. But he also even taught the church to watch out for one another and actually call one another to repent of sin. Remember Matthew 18, he went into this big time. Your brother sins against you, go to him. Call him out on it. If he refuses to repent, bring a couple more. If he refuses to listen to them, tell the church. If he refuses to listen to the church, treat him like an unbeliever. Evangelize him because look at he or she is acting like an unbeliever. But even more than that, he followed it up with this, that we are to be a forgiving people, right? He said, as soon as they repent, you forgive. And Peter says, how many times should my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times, being generous? Jesus said, no. Seventy times seven. In other words, you don't even keep track. We're a forgiving community. And he says it's because you have been forgiven. You see, isn't that exactly what he taught us when he taught us to pray? Forgive us our trespasses, you know, as we have forgiven others. Because those who don't forgive won't be forgiven. That's the idea. He taught them to pray daily, to seek God through daily private prayer and worship. He taught them to watch and pray and guard against temptation to seek from deliverance from temptation from God, understanding that as he told the disciples, the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. He's constantly throughout the whole gospel teaching them to be dependent on God for all things. Daily provision, spiritual help, forgiveness they need. We're dependent on God for everything. And he taught them to take their own sin very seriously. Take all necessary steps to battle personal sin using very graphic language. You're saying, man, if your eye offends you, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better to lose that eye and enter in the kingdom than to keep that eye and not enter the kingdom or cut off your hand. Of course, he's using hyperbole here and doesn't intend you to take that literally. But he tends you to take it seriously, right? He taught them to honor marriage and the importance and the permanence of marriage, and to care for children. He commanded them to be ready and watching for His return, to be faithful until the end. He commanded them to seek the kingdom of God, to lay up treasures on, in heaven and not on earth, to live for the things of the world to come and not for the present world. 
He taught them to take their discipleship seriously and to understand that it would be worth it in the end even if they had to give up their life here for the sake of the gospel. To endure to the end and experience the glorious salvation that he promises. And we could go on, and I'm sure you could think of others, and I encourage you to do that and spend some time this week thinking about what Jesus taught us. But I want to hone in on one more important point that Jesus taught his disciples. He commanded them to pursue righteousness. He taught them the importance of righteousness. But he did so in a way, friends, that I think was actually leading to another point, and this will, this will lead us into the book of Romans wonderfully. The very first words in Matthew 3.15 that Jesus spoke were at his baptism. Remember, John was given that baptism of repentance for sin. Jesus came to be baptized by him, and John said, I want to baptize you. Yeah, I got to be baptized by you. I'm not, I don't need to baptize you. And he says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. I mean, think about that statement. That's a powerful statement. It's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. As a matter of fact, he goes on then in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verses 19 to 20. He says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a powerful statement, especially for those first century Jews that watched these Pharisees work their whole life to be righteous before God. Now they're being told that we must fulfill all righteousness and that we must have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees? We should be getting nervous here, shouldn't we? Matthew 5, 48, he says to them, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Meaning, perfection is more than a goal. It's a requirement. And the defined perfection isn't just what you think would be perfect or I think what would be perfect. The standard is God himself. Friends, these are devastating teachings for people like us who understand we're not perfect. Who understand we don't have righteousness. That we often act in very unrighteous ways. Do you remember what we said, and we talked about that a long time ago, that I think it was Jesus' intention. As he comes out the gates preaching about the kingdom of God, how to enter into the kingdom of God, to obliterate your sense of self-righteousness, to destroy your hope of getting into his kingdom on your own. He was showing the impossibility of doing what those scribes and Pharisees thought they were doing. They were trying to gain righteousness to get into the kingdom. You understand they were right in seeing that God demands righteousness, right? 
You understand this. They were right in seeing that God demands perfection. They knew this is what God wanted, and they knew the law was right, and they said, you know what? I can do this. I can make it so that I'm righteous enough so when I stand before God on the judgment day, he'll see, yes, he'll see some wrong I've done, but he'll see that the right outbalance the wrong, and he'll say, you're righteous. He'd, He'd declare me righteous. And so that's what it means to be a self-righteous person. You're attempting to obey God enough so that you can make it through the judgment and make it into heaven. That's essentially the idea. The self-righteous person cries out, I can do that. I'll try real hard my whole life and do good and obey God the best I can. Wasn't that the rich young ruler? He said, how can I inherit eternal life? Jesus named off the Ten Commandments and he said, oh, I've kept those from my youth. He was the good kid. I told you I worry more about the good kids than the bad kids. I say that tongue in cheek. I don't really worry more. Actually, I do worry more maybe about the good kids than bad kids because if they're self-righteous, that's a real problem, isn't it? That's why, and I'm going to leave us with this last verse. It sets us up, I think, for the book of Romans. Look at chapter 6, verse 33. What does Jesus say in verse 33? But seek first the kingdom of God and what? His righteousness. Have you ever caught that? Seek first the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God, essentially. He doesn't say, seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness. Get to work. This is your priority every day. Seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness. Build up your righteous standing. And then when you assemble before me, if you were sheep enough, I'll put you on my right hand. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God. How do we seek His righteousness? What does that mean? It can't mean less than this, friends. We're pursuing the righteousness of God Himself, the perfection He requires through faith in His Son. This is the whole theme of the book of Romans the righteousness of God upon all those who believe in His Son. See, what God's plan was one of grace, friends, not one of works. It isn't us working our way up to God and being righteous enough. No, it's that the righteous one Himself came to earth, Emmanuel, God with us, in order to save us from our sins, you see. We achieve His righteousness not by our works, but by the works of Christ given to us through faith. This is why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul, how is it the power of God for salvation? He answers on verse 17, for in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, in this good news about Jesus is that he is your righteousness. So you don't work yourself into this relationship with God. You put your faith and trust in him and God gives you his righteousness. 
That's what the whole Gospel of Matthew is pointing you to. Do you understand that? To If you read the Gospel of Matthew first and foremost to see what you're supposed to do every day, you're reading it wrong. You're supposed to read the Gospel of Matthew saying, look what Jesus has done for me. And the righteousness I get from Him by faith, the righteousness I need without any works of the law at all. It's the righteousness of God apart from the law. This is a righteousness we get by grace through faith in Christ. So when we're seeking His righteousness, we do that through faith in Jesus. As a matter of fact, did you know you could summarize the entire Gospel of Matthew from the book of Jeremiah the prophet? And he said this in chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. He said this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Who's that? That's Jesus. Now listen to this. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. What? The Lord is our righteousness. That's his name. That's the name of Jesus. He is our righteousness. You see, friends, if you find yourself today standing in the presence of God and you're asked the question, why would I let you into my kingdom? Friends, you only have one answer to that question. Please hear this. You have one answer to that question. His name is Jesus. Your righteousness the one who lived and died and was raised for you. It's his name you claim, you see, that gets you into the kingdom. The Lord is our righteousness. And Paul will go on in Romans, 16, uh, Romans for 16 chapters and he will use that word righteousness or a, or a, a related word about 50 times in 16 chapters to explain to you exactly what it is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You want to seek the righteousness of God? Make that your priority, then study the book of Romans. That's the idea, and that's what we'll begin very soon. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace to us. You have, through faith, justified us freely in the Lord who is our righteousness. We exalt him and his name. Amen.